All right, Hosea chapter 2. Last week we finished up reading at chapter 2 and verse 1. So I'm going to be picking up at chapter 2 and verse 2, and we'll read on through the end of chapter 3, and that will conclude this overture, introductory kind of section to this wonderful prophetic book. So as you're able, please, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, in which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. And in that day I will answer, declares Yahweh, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, He shall say, you are my God. 
And Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethech of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without aphod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. Now, I don't know how many of you have spent much time in the book of Hosea. Uh, it's, it's the kind of book that there's a lot of really great st- statements in it that get plucked out, you know, um, and, and some wonderful things there. But we don't often see the rest of the context. I hope that as we, as we read this portion, that the flow of, of God's relationship with his people became clear. This is going to be developed throughout the rest of the book, uh, and, and we're going to, we're going to uh, spend time looking more at the details of this. So uh, just as we began last week, talking about the, uh, this idea that these, this opening section is like an overture to an opera, uh, that kind of thing, where all the themes of the, of the, the music to come are, are, are given in short bits, all blended together. It's a little bit like that. Last week, we were able to look at Hosea's family life immediately as he marries Gomer, and Gomer proves unfaithful. He has a child. The first one's name is Jezreel, which you heard again in this passage here. And that one, uh, that son appeared to be legitimate. Then the next two children appeared to be illegitimate. And they were to uh, uh, name their children uh, names that reflected that illegitimacy and that sin. Uh, Lo uh, ru, uh, Ruama, which there's no mercy, and Lo Ami, which means no people. And, you know, horrible names to name your child, right? It, it's be like, you know, you parents here, name it, you know what I think, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, and I'll use my I'll use my family name. Okay, so I won't use anybody else's name. But it'd be like saying, "Well, um, okay, um, we've we've just had this child. Uh, we're going to name you No Pine. Like you're not really part of us." I mean, that's essentially what God commanded Hosea to name his children. Even though you got all the appearances of being part of the family, you're really not. And all because of sin. So we looked at that, and we looked at uh, Gomer's relationship and what kind of woman she actually was and, and uh, all of that. So now, uh, in that, flowing out of that is this command to, plea, to plead with uh, your mother. Now, in this case, Certainly Gomer is in view, but uh, as far as just the, the springboard off of which to talk about Israel. 
Because we've seen in this passage already, just as I read, that the Lord is saying, yeah, Gomer and your relationship with her, Hosea, is just like my relationship with Israel. So the mother here is, is basically go back and plead uh, to repent and return. Because at this point, basically, the Lord is saying, um, yeah, if you notice, plead with your mother, because she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband. It's like the Lord has for a time disowned Israel, and they're going to suffer the consequences of being out of that relationship. It's not permanent, it's not eternal, but it's a time of judgment that actually comes, it should come as no surprise whatsoever to Israel because these curses that are described here in this passage are exactly what Moses told Israel at the time. And you read, go read Deuteronomy and look at all the curses that are there for rebellion against God. And they're all right here. It's all just repeated. Israel should have known. They don't walk according to God's way. I'm going to suffer the consequences. So the consequences are the, the first thing that's here. And, and the, the judgments that are, that are going to be poured out upon Israel at God's hands are really severe. And, but that's because the sins are severe. Now, before we go any further... One of the challenges with this, with these opening sections, is that it it is so strongly connected with historic Israel and their idolatry and their wandering away from God, their rebellion against Him, that we can be tempted to just look at this and go, "Yeah, those Israelites." Now. And so as we're going to go through this, we're going to talk a lot about Israel, but I really want each of us to have in our own minds a, a, a recognition that the sins of Israel are really not so different than ours. The way that these are expressed here are pretty graphic, as you've already noticed. And you, could, you and I could very easily look at that and go, well, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Sure glad, like that Pharisee on the street corner, I'm sure thankful I'm not sinning like that. Let's not have that attitude. As we go through this, let's uh, ask the Lord to help us examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. And if we're walking in a way that is reflective of what Israel did or of what God is calling us to do, actually, walking in faithfulness to him. So with that measure of introduction to that, let's think about the sins of Israel that the Lord uh, is uh, bringing to their attention. In verse 2, um, the, the second half of that verse, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So what, I mean, you can think, okay, Gomer, all right, so she's been an adulteress and gone after other men. Okay. What What is this kind of language when it is referring to Israel's behavior always referring to in the Old Testament. Always. When Israel is referred to as being adulterous, 
and being unfaithful, what are they doing? They're going after other gods. Absolutely. Idolatry. Now, anyone here have any uh, idols that you set up in your house and worship? I better not see any hands. And yet, how many of us have idols in our hearts? Yeah, it's more cleaned up. We got a little whitewash on it. It's not quite as graphic. But we can seek after other things to bring us pleasure, other things that we put our confidence in, other things that we look to for safety, other things that we look to for, for joy and fulfillment, other things that we spend far more time on than we do the Lord himself. Idolatry is, was, a, was a, something that, if, you know, if you've read through the book of Judges and you've read through other places in the Old Testament as well, this constant, this constant cycle that Israel was going through. They go after other gods. The Baals are mentioned here. Uh, or the Baals, as it's sometimes um, pronounced. Uh, those gods of the land of Canaan, which didn't do the Canaanites a lick of good, but the Israelites went after them anyway. And we can look at that and go, that is just about the stupidest thing that you can think of. Let's, let's, let's go in, we're going to conquer this. The gods did, uh, of, the, of the land did absolutely nothing, but you know what? Hey, let's worship them. And we look at that and rightly think that is the utmost of foolishness. And yet, let's think about the gods of this land that we live in. Gods of prosperity and power and position and, and I'll put happiness in quotes. Fun, leisure, comfort. Just stop for a minute and, and take a really honest look at what those gods, those things that people put all their time, money, effort, energy, attention, all of that into, look at, you know, you can say, oh yeah, well, that, that boat made that person happy. I, I like boats, okay, don't get me wrong, but that boat made them happy, that house made them happy, that job made them happy, that place they want to live made them happy, whatever it is, boy, isn't that great? Boy, I need to do that too. Take a step back and look at the condition of our country and tell me how much joy there really is here. How much real satisfaction, how much real contentment, how much real peace is here. And then take it to the world. Truly, the wicked say, peace, peace. But there is no peace. All of those things that the world says are so important accomplish nothing. And yet, here in the church, professing believers go after the same things and think that somehow... It's going to be different. It's like those people that, that keep crying for socialism and that it's just it's going to be the most wonderful thing. We're going to set up a utopia. It's wonderful. It's never worked anywhere else. It's been a total and utter disaster everywhere else, but it's going to work this time. It doesn't make any sense. Israel, in responding to the God who delivered her, and it's referenced here in this passage. Did you catch that? As, as go, you know, return to the days of your youth, as, as in when I delivered you out of the land of Egypt. 
You know, it's got to be pretty bad if the conditions of Hosea's day are looked at, um, um, or put it the other way, are, are such that Israel's attitude during the Exodus is looked upon as a really great thing. Because <laughs> how many times during the Exodus did they were, were they complaining, they were arguing, they were pushing back, they were like, oh, what'd you do this for? And so on. And yet, compared to Hosea's day, those are the glory days. But at least, by God's grace, they actually left the land. They left Egypt behind. Yeah, they complained a lot as they walked along. But the Lord delivered them. And they were often also very grateful in the midst of the <laughs> complaining seasons as well. But idolatry is this huge thing. See, it also mentioned in verse 5 about their mother playing the whore there. Um, and also in verse 13, it's also expressed there, I will punish her for the feast days, just in case there was any doubt about what God is talking about. He, he, he stops talking about it in figurative language and says, I'm going to judge them for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them. So there it is. You've been completely idolatrous and gone after other gods. And then, it's, if that's not bad enough, then Israel has, uh, they, they add on, they heap onto the sin, the sin of blasphemy. Look at verse five. The second half of the verse says, she, that is Israel, said, I will go after my lovers. Who gave me my bread and my water, my wool, flax, oil, and drink? Did you catch a problem with that statement? This is blasphemy. Because it attributes the glories and the works of God to someone else. And Israel is looking everywhere else and saying, it's not just that they're great, these other gods, but look, they're the ones that gave me all this. It's kind of, uh, this is the, the sin of the golden calf with a megaphone. Right? Remember the golden calf, what Aaron said, hear your, hear your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Blasphemous statement, because it was God who brought them, not some carved image. Verse 8, she did not know it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal, giving Baal credit for what God had done. And verse 12, more blasphemy is talking about, I will, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, what she said, these are my wages, I'm owed this. I'm owed um, all these things which my lovers have given me. Again, no gratitude to the Lord who gave them everything that they had. So idolatry, blasphemy, and verse 13 to kind of the, the capstone and, and some, I don't know, this verse, every time I read it, it just strikes me as one of the saddest verses in the Bible. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. Now, 
forgetting God is may not seem in the same kind of category as idolatry and blasphemy, but in many ways, it's the worst sin of all. Because God has plastered his name and the evidence of his character and his actions everywhere in this world. There is no excuse whatsoever for anyone not to acknowledge the God of heaven. And yet many pretend as if he never existed. If they do acknowledge his existence, they mock him or they use his name in vain. But as far as having anything, uh, him having any influence in their lives, as far as they're concerned, they go around um, as if he's not there, completely forgetting their obligation to the one who created them. And again, you can look at that and say, I'm sure glad that's not me. Because after all, here I am in church. Yeah, maybe you have family devotions. That's good. Maybe you don't. That's not good. Maybe you just, uh, you, you know, you, 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 you pray over your meals or, you know, when something's going wrong, you got a problem, you, you, you kind of fire up the prayer machine again. But let's be honest with ourselves. How much does the God of heaven occupy our thoughts? Or are we often just as guilty as Israel in maybe not outwardly rebelling, but rebelling nonetheless when we do not take pains to remember him day in and day out in all that we do? This is Israel's sin. Unfortunately, all too often, it's also the sins of the church. And what is going to be described here in terms of the judgments upon such, uh, such a rebellion is really the, the plight of the believer, a professing believer at least, who rebels against God. Certainly, even you know, believers, we think about people like David and Peter and others who did some pretty heinous things, the Lord did not abandon them, and they, we wouldn't say they weren't believers to begin with, but they, they were forgetting God. They were forgetting who he was and what their obligation was to him. And we can do it too. And, beloved, we do not want to endure the judgments that came against Israel. Israel sent away into exile, being deprived of all these things that they took for granted and thought that their, their commitment to their idols provided them rather than the God who made covenant with them. Let's think about the sins are severe. Let's think about the judgments that are severe. And we've already seen a taste of it, have we not? With the names of Hosea's children, Lo uh, Ruhamah and Lo Ami, no mercy and no people. You are not my people. In verse two, the Lord comes to, to the nation and essentially says, plead to yourself. So he's talking to the citizens. Of course, they're all the nation as it is. So in a sense, he's basically saying, you need to have a good conversation with yourself here <clears throat> and plead with, with, uh, with yourselves, with, with the nation, 
to return unto God. You're, when when uh, in this situation, the children, the picture here is that the children are charging the mother with sin. Parents, have you ever had your child point out to you something that you did wrong? And I don't mean something that they didn't like. I mean something that you did wrong. It's not a pleasant experience. I mean, you're right. I mean, the discipling should come the other way around. And so the shame of having your child having to come up to you and go, but daddy, didn't you say, but, 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 why are you doing that? Um, if you have any conscience at all, that's a shameful thing. Um, the Lord is saying, your children need to charge you, charge you with your sins and the sins that we've just talked about here. You're not behaving faithfully before God. We can all have a role in each other's lives to call each other to repentance, to call each other to, to being careful about our behavior before the Lord and before each other. Sometimes, um, not sometimes, when we do the wrong thing and somebody in our midst calls us up on it, it's not fun. It's uncomfortable. We wish it wouldn't happen. We might be tempted to get, to get angry at this person who dared tell me that I was wrong. But the fact is, is that we're often wrong. We need to own it and quit pretending that we're not and recognize that this calling to account, this charging is something that is an act of love, not an act of spite. The Lord is not telling the children to plead with the mother so that they can just go, see now, I don't have to deal with you anymore. None of that's there. It's a call to return. It's a call to um, a, a restoration of a, of, a, of, a, of a relationship that has been broken because of sin. In this verse, you know, what, so the Lord brings children, those who you know, you think you know better, but those who don't know any better do uh, and, and shame us. Uh, this, the judgment upon Israel was going to be very severe. Her marriage was being denied by God. She's not my wife. I'm not her husband. It calls to mind the words from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 16, where we read that God is not ashamed to be called their God. But what did Jesus say? If you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before the Father. Um, you want to have a relationship with the Lord that is free of shame. That is free of impediments. To be able to come into his presence with singing and not with weeping because of our sin. And, and more than just denying their relationship and basically setting it aside until the judgment is complete, the blessings of it aside, the benefits of it aside, the Lord tells Israel that her shame is going to be exposed. You see that verse 3, stripping her naked. Verse 10, 
uh, uncovering her lewdness. In other words, and we see that also in the book of Revelation, do we not? Uh, that same kind of thing with Babylon that is going to be stripped bare and shown to be impotent and shown to be powerless and shown to be uh, for it just as corrupt and horrible as she really is on the inside and uh, despite how she was painted on the outside. Uh, I, I have no doubt that Gomer um, was a woman who, who did her best to look good on the outside. You know, if the barn needs painting, paint it. She needed to be painted because inside that barn was refuse and chaos and misery and unhappiness as she went to seek joy elsewhere besides her husband. Israel loved to paint herself up. Speak of the jewelry and the ornamentation and all of that that's there. That, so putting this on because we look good. It's easy for us to paint the barn and think we've done all that we need to do. But in the day that we sin, the Lord says, I'm going to expose you. And it's not going to be pretty. The Lord is more concerned about the reclamation of your soul than he is about the reputation of your name. Because when he reclaims your soul, he gives you a new name. We are so focused on our image sometimes that we run after all these other things that we think are going to make us happy or make us important or make us be seen in a certain way by others. And the Lord says, I'm going to expose you for all that you are. This is the one who wounds us so that he can bind us up again. It's kind of the idea here. And not only that, then the judgment that is going to come upon Israel is that not just those of you that are immediately sinning right now, but your children are going to suffer as well. Upon her children also, I will have no mercy. Which brings to mind the words uh, from the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus 20. Or I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I'm thankful that that verse goes on, but we'll just focus on that portion right now. There are consequences for succeeding generations. Now, we're a relatively new church. A little over 11 years old now. Uh, pretty exciting. That's great. As churches go, we're just still infantile, infants, right? Uh, we've got a long ways to go. Churches have been around, uh, some churches have been around for you know, generations. The things that we do here as to what we put forward as, as godly and true and right will have an impact upon succeeding generations, for good or for ill. If we are more concerned in this church about our outward appearance than we are about our, our actual relationship with our God, our children will suffer for that. 
They may not realize that they're in a suffering condition. They may grow up in a church that outwardly looks great and may be prosperous and we've got all of our trappings and all the things that we're and they They're all used to this. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, they, for all intent and purposes, have been raised, in spite of the trappings, in, a, in an environment of practical atheism. That while we talk about God a lot, uh, the way that we live uh, shows that this is just our little cubbyhole thing, and the rest of life we can do what we want. And the impact upon our children is enormous because we raise them essentially to become idolaters, blasphemers, and forgetters of God. Let it not be so. The judgments that come upon Israel are also <clears throat> reflected in the emptiness of her idols that she's going to be, she's going to experience the reality of coming face to face with the truth that those idols can do nothing. So take a look at verse six. I will hedge up her way with thorns. I'll build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She's going to pursue her lover. She's going to be trying to find her way. We can talk about going after, doing things God's way. We can be obedient to his word and all those sorts of things. But if we live in a way that says, nope, um, I'm really depending on other things and attributing my prosperity and my success to my own wisdom or to the benefit of others or to the blessings from, that come from others or whatever, instead of God himself. If I walk around forgetting God and acting as if he's really not there, I'm going to get, the Lord's going to say, all right, you want to search after those things? Go right ahead. You are not going to get satisfied. You will never reach the goal that, you, that you're going after of peace and safety and joy and contentment and fullness and all of those other things. <clears throat> you're going to pursue them. But at every turn, uh, and, and, and I'm kind of glad this verse is here. Anybody here like discipline? Probably not. I'm not seeing a big show of hands. And yet, that hedging up with the thorns and not allowing to find the way, that is actually mercy, is it not? That discipline that God promised Israel is showing his mercy, that he doesn't just let them catch up to the lovers and be satisfied with them. And in his mercy, he says, nope, you're not going that way. You're going to be lost. You're, you're, there, there is you're going to have no other choice but to turn to me because everything else you're looking for is going to be shown to be smoke and mirrors, dust, emptiness. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah <clears throat> calls the prophets of Baal or Baal to uh, Mount Carmel. And what is he, how he mocks them. Do you remember that? Love that story. He says, oh, maybe, maybe, call louder. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's indisposed. Uh, you know, come on. Just keep at it. Just surely he'll answer you. He's just dripping with sarcasm. And they 
They take the bait and they're jumping, they're dancing, they're cutting themselves with knives, they're doing all kinds of things, yelling, screaming, trying to get their God's attention. And this, I mean, surely somebody had to be looking at this and going, these people are idiots. The foolishness of wickedness that wants to pretend something's there when it isn't, which is exactly what Christians are often accused of, is it not? Christianity is just a crutch. It's something that weak people depend upon. And yet we know that our God is real. We've seen his hand. We've, we know the evidence of it in our own hearts and in the lives of others. We've seen answered prayer. We've seen throughout history the evidence of his work in accordance with the things that he said would happen. Not to mention all of the other evidence in creation itself that completely turns the whole um, <clears throat> evolutionary idolatry on its ear. So, you know, you look at all of that kind of, that kind of stuff, and are we going to be standing with the prophets of Baal that are going after emptiness and nothing? Or are we going to be... Are we going to be following after the one true and living God? The judgment that's going to come upon Israel, and that did come upon Israel, was basically to show that in spite of all of their thought, that if I worship all these other gods of the nations, we'll be safe. What happened to them? They got carried away into exile. And all those other gods couldn't do a single thing. They weren't calling on the God of Israel. They were calling upon the other gods. And the Lord said, fine. Romans, shades of Romans chapter 1. That's the way you want to, want to go? Well, you're reprobate. I'm not even going to allow you to return. You're going to pay the penalty and come face to face with the reality of your sin. The emptiness of your faith that is put in things that are not God's at all. And even the things that they were looking for, you know, that they'd been pursuing, that they would be sustained with the wheat, the, the oil, and the, the, the flax, and the wool, and all those other things. The Lord says, I'm taking all that away from you too. Dear friends, if you want to flourish in this life, then walk in obedience to the Lord. I didn't say if you want to be rich in the sense of, you know, you're going to have, you just put in your, I don't know, everybody here probably has a different threshold of what they think rich is. Um, I'm not talking about bank account stuff, but I'm talking about flourishing, having enough, being content, being satisfied, being joyful in the things the Lord has given you. Walk in obedience to him. You'll never lack for anything. Ever as you walk in obedience to him. But I assure you, if, if you play the game and pretend that you're Christians and then live your own way, all those things that you're going after to try to help make your life secure will be just like sand in the fingers. You might get gritty, but you won't be able to keep a thing that truly satisfies. And you'll live your life in constant discontent and worry rather than resting in the God who provides all things, when we just rest in him and obey him. The Lord says, I'm going to take all that stuff away from you. 
And, and even look at this. Okay, here's shades of the prodigal son come, right? Remember when he wanders off and he gets all uh, just totally destitute? Be happy if he could eat some of the pig slop. Finally decides, you know what, I'm going to go home. And here's the difference between this story and that story. Of course, when he goes home, he's received. But there's judgment that's going to come upon Israel here. There will be ultimate reception. But look at verse 7. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And look at verse 11. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, moon, Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. <clears throat> I, I think what's being spoken of here is um, what happens when we get smacked upside the head by the Lord because of our sin, and then we, we try outer reformation. We try painting the barn again. We try... Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up my Bible reading. I'm gonna pick up my prayer life. I'm gonna be more faithful in church. I'm gonna do this or do that or do the other thing. Because uh, clearly my rebellion isn't working, so I need to I need to do some outward reformation. The Lord's not interested just in our outward reformation. He's not interested in our feasts and our Sabbaths and our uh, the. There's two different feasts mentioned there: the appointed ones and then basically. Fellowship, kind of thing. In other words, all those things that that are, are part of us here, that are some of the things that we do as a church and our our liturgy, our rituals, our worship services, our activities, all those things. If you think that that's going to be the source of your ultimate joy, you're off base. Because the Lord says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to put an end to those. I'm going to put an end to your mirth. Until you truly repent, you're not going to find any joy in just outward reformation. It's not enough. It wasn't enough for Israel. They needed to be humbled. They needed to be humbled. And they needed to not just do the easy thing by cleaning up their act a bit. There had to be a true heart reformation. Um, and I'm thankful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up this right now because I don't want to shortchange the next section, which is enormous in terms of gospel truth and the mercy and grace of our God. But let me give you just a little bit of a hint, uh, a, key, a key verse here is in verse 19 to help us keep all this in perspective because, you know, this is, a, this is pretty hard stuff. I'm not your husband. You're not my wife. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deprive you of all these things. I'm going to show your corruption. You're going to be shamed before all. This is tough stuff. But look at verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Oh, I'm thankful for that verse. We're going to be spending some time with that verse and the rest of this section to, to wrap up our look at the overture, um, God willing, next Sunday. 
So, yes, Homer, uh, excuse me, Hosea and Gomer got started off pretty well. Gomer goes astray. The consequences for his family were devastating. And what is pictured in his family life is, is uh, little but judgment. I say uh, there's, a, there's a, a ray of hope in the name of the first son, Jezreel, which we'll explore next week uh, as to what that's all about. Um, but uh, as she takes off, there's judgment on her, there's judgment upon the children, she is not going to find peace and joy in her other lovers at all, but rather she will be judged and Israel, of which, of which she is the, the, the symbol or the picture, is going to be hugely judged because of her rebellion. And uh, there is an, we'll, we're going to see this a little bit next week as well. It's, it does seem pretty clear that Israel certainly did a lot of outer reformation. They learned some lessons, but they had more to learn. And we'll see what those are, God willing, next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at the sins uh, that are so common among those who name your name, idolatry, blasphemy, forgetting you, Lord, we honestly must look at ourselves and know that these, these sins, uh, we are no strangers to these sins. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us, convict us of our sins in these areas. Lord, we do not, uh, we do not want to suffer the, the curses upon those in covenant with you who break that covenant. We never want you to be ashamed of us. Lord, our shame because of our sin is great. We, we only want to deal with you with that and do not wish to be exposed to the world to give the wicked cause to blaspheme because of our failures. Lord, we do not wish to pass the effects of our sins on to uh, the, six, the generations that come after us. Lord, provide for our needs. Let, do not take away our sustenance, but rather provide for us as you have. And Lord, let us walk in gratitude and be sure that we credit you for our maintenance and no other. Let us learn from Gomer's example and from Israel's example and not follow it. But let, rather, Father, let us depend upon your mercy and love and be devoted to you all the days of our lives. Keep us in holiness for your glory, for your name's sake. We pray these things because of and enabled by the, what Christ has done for us. Amen.